Well, good morning, Southside Baptist Church. Oh, it's so good to be with you. Uh, as Blake mentioned earlier, my name is Ben Lacey, and uh, it is such a privilege to be here with Southside this morning. Uh, many of you have never heard of me until this morning, but I've known of you for a really long time, and uh, I come with greetings from the core team, that is Trinity River Baptist Church this morning, uh, for your love, for your prayers, and for your support of us. Uh, I have been so blessed by you and your pastor. I've known Blake uh, for a few years now. And as he mentioned that he would be happy to be a member of this church, so would I, but mainly because Blake's your pastor. Uh, and he's been a huge blessing to me, huge encouragement along the way. And in many ways, I'm not sure this would hap- wouldn't have happened or would have happened if it hadn't been for you guys and Blake and many other churches who were concerned about the health and well-being of churches in Fort Worth and beyond. Uh, so it's a privilege to be with you this morning and to open God's Word. Uh, if, you, if you do have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open it now and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, and we'll be in verses 19 through 26 this morning. And as you turn there, I have a question that I want you to consider this morning. What are you known for? What are you known for? If I were to ask your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, what would they say that that you're known for? If they were to sum you up in one word, what would it be? Recently, I took my oldest daughter, Nora, out on a daddy-daughter day. I do that a few times a month. And uh, we were just kind of debriefing from our big move from D.C. to Texas. And so over lunch, I just asked her, sweetie, what's what's your most favorite place that we've ever lived? Washington, D.C., or Texas? And, And she looked at me like I was a fool. Why would you ask such a question, Father? And she just said, Texas. And uh, I said, why? And again, she looked at me sternly and she said, because I'm a Texan. (laughs) I said, hashtag discipling. Amen. Just been doing good discipleship there. But even from a young age, we're all seeking to be known for something. I mean, think about the world around us. We are filled, our, our world is filled with individuals who want to be known. They pride themselves in being known for a, a certain identity, uh, whether it be their race, their gender, their occupation, or political party. Whatever an individual feels is most significant about themselves, well, they'll do whatever they can to make that known. We see this with companies all in our nation. It's not only what they sell, but what they stand for. That's why our country is filled with hashtags and flags and stickers to declare, this is who I am. But what about for us Christians? What should we be known for? Should we give in to the world's ever-transient categories? Or should we seek to be known for something that will transcend our current cultural moment? Well, thankfully, God's word is going to bring some clarity this morning. And from our passage, I think there are three things that every Christian and every church should be seeking to be known for. There are three things. If you're a note taker, here you are. Here's my outline up front. Number one, preaching Christ. That's going to cover verses 19 through 21 of our passage. The second thing is investing in Christ's church. That's going to cover verses 22 through 24 of our passage. And the third thing is known for Christ alone. 
That's going to cover verses 25 through 26. So the three things that we should all be seeking to be known for as, a, as local churches and as members who live out our faith throughout the week are preaching Christ, investing in Christ's church, and known for Christ alone. Let's look at our Bibles now. Look at Acts eleven nineteen through 26 and listen along while I read. This is what the Holy Spirit wrote through the inspiration, the, Luke wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed, turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now we've parachuted into the middle of a book and kind of the end of a chapter. So what I want to do now is kind of give us some context of what's happening in the book and kind of where we are in this passage so we can kind of better understand our passage in particular. Uh, At the very beginning of the book of Acts, Luke says in verse 1 of chapter 1 that he's writing to a man named Theophilus. He said, in my first book, meaning the gospel according to Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And in this second letter, what is he doing? He's continuing to teach what Jesus continued to do and teach through his disciples by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascended to heaven, but he's not stopped working. And so then we see Jesus in Acts 1, 8, talking to his disciples. And he's going to give them their job description while he is in heaven. And he says this, But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the book of Acts was written to help us understand how the gospel went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's the point of the book of Acts. And more specifically, when we get to Acts 10 and 11, we're kind of getting a greater understanding of what Jesus meant that the gospel went to the ends of the earth and how they would be, his disciples would be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And in Acts 10, there's that famous account where Peter is on the roof roof and he's praying. And and God speaks to him and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he sees all these things. He sees bacon on this thing there. He gets to eat that, right? And Peter's like, no, Lord. And he says, what I've called clean, do not call common. And from there, the Lord leads Peter to go share with a man named Cornelius and his family. And that's kind of the first family of Gentile converts. They come to faith in Christ and they receive the Holy Spirit. This was so significant in salvation history that the gospel wasn't just for Jews. That Jesus Christ died to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This was so significant that's happening here in Acts 10. And it was so significant that people in Jerusalem were like, Peter, what are you doing? 
eating with Gentiles. And in Acts eleven seventeen, Peter responds, and reflecting on what happened, he says this. If then God gave the same gift to them, that is the Spirit of God, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, To then the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, our passage this morning is kind of a continuation of how the gospel went to the ends of the earth. See them sharing in the gospel and preaching the gospel. So we kind of began to see what these early, the early church was known for and what they were doing. And the first thing I want us to see this morning they were known for was preaching Christ. They were known for preaching Christ. Look back at your Bible in verse 19. It says, Now there arose those who, uh, now those who were scattered uh, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So here, Luke tells us that believers were scattered. Well, why were they scattered? Well, over the persecution that arose over Stephen. If you go back to Acts 7, you would see that Stephen was the first martyr. He stands up, he speaks the truth about who Christ is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the only way to be made right with God, and he's killed. And from there, there's a dispersion. Christians are sent all over the surrounding areas and kind of hundreds of miles away. We see these Christians, they left Jerusalem, and they went from there, and they went to Cyprus, Cyrene, and Antioch. And Luke tells us what these persecuted Christians did. As they went to these new places, what did they do? They preached the gospel. Not to everyone. Initially, it was just to the Jews. But then there arose some men who decided that not only did the Jews need to hear about this, but the Hellenists, those are Gentiles, they needed to hear about the gospel as well. And they began to preach, and guess what happened? The Lord was merciful, and he drew more people unto himself through the preaching of his word. Are you noticing what is happening here in the book? That God used God in his strange providence, and his mysterious providence, used the death of his servant, Stephen, to draw those who were far from him to himself. God used the death of a faithful brother to draw many more people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. And calling a saint home to himself, God drew sinners to himself. God used death to bring life. I mean, just think about this. Those men who killed Stephen, their hope was to shut him up, to stop the message. And in the persecution in which they afflicted on Stephen and killing him, sent the gospel further out to more people and to more places. And more people heard the gospel and they responded to it. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you come into into this room with today. But if you're at all tempted to doubt the goodness of God, And the faithfulness of God. I would encourage you to consider our passage this morning. Of how God used that which was evil for good. Better yet, I would encourage you to consider the cross of Jesus Christ. That God put forth his son, the only one who was sinless, as a propitiation for our sins in our place, in our stead. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might receive his righteousness. I mean, just think about this. God used the enemy's weapon of death against him. Jesus died to bring life. Jesus died to end death once and for all. Jesus took on death so that those who would repent and believe would triumph over death. 
God used that which was evil for good. For those who are here and you're not a Christian, you're lost in immorality, you've not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, have you ever considered that God might be using affliction and trial in your life to drive you to the end of yourself straight into the arms of Jesus? Have you considered that today? And if you're here today and you've come to the end of yourself and all that the world offers has brought you no hope, you are in the right place today. The only hope that you can have in this life is in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't know what it means to be a Christian or you want to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus, I'd be happy to talk with you, Blakewood, as well. Just ask somebody next to you and say, hey, I want to follow Jesus. If they're a Christian, that's going to be the most exciting thing they've ever heard today, right? Be so thrilled to hear that. We'll have to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. For those who are Christians, I just want to encourage you, don't be surprised when God uses the trials and afflictions and sorrows in your life to preach the gospel to those who are far from him. Don't be surprised that God might send tragedy your way so that somebody in your life might see your faith and your trust in God in the midst of uncertainty and they might hear the gospel. It's like this, my grandfather for years has had a skin cancer that keeps coming back in the same place and he keeps going back to the same doctor and keeps having it removed. And every time he goes to this doctor, he tells him, you need to become a Christian. And so recently he said, God's going to keep sending me this skin cancer until you become a Christian. So I want you to go ahead and get on with it for the best of us, right? <laughs> He's leveraging this hardship for good. I mean, just think about saints throughout history who have experienced great trial and hardships. Think about a sister, Joni Erickson Tata, who's paralyzed at 18. And yet for the rest of her life, she used her tragedy to point other people to Jesus. And if you're here and you're going through great trial, I don't want to make light of your pain. I, I, I don't want to make light of what you're going through like it's something easy and not difficult. I do, however, want you to lift your eyes to the God who saved you from your sins and encourage you to continue to trust him even when it's hard and consider that he might have sent this your way for your sanctification and for the good of those around you. Might even today, might you pray what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, this is not my will for you to do this. Let it pass if it be your will. However, use it for your glory. Let your will be done in the midst of my pain and suffering. For my ultimate sanctification and even for the salvation of others around me. Oh, pray that God would give you perspective in the midst of trials and suffering. So that other people maybe might see you using this as a platform to preach the gospel. God used the death of his servant to save those who were far from him. I want you to notice something else about this passage here that we read, though that God scattered them. These believers faithfully proclaimed the message where they were sent. Their circumstances might not have been ideal. They might have been sent to places they did not want to go. They might have been far from family and friends, but it did not stop them talking about Jesus. They continued to share the hope of Christ with whoever was in front of them. So church, wherever God leads you, talk about Jesus. And whoever God puts in front of you, share the hope of Jesus with them. You might be tempted like some of these folks to say, well, they're not a specific group of people. They might make me uncomfortable. They might be different. And praise God that he's put you in, in, in their life to share the hope of Christ. 
So wherever you go and whoever God puts you in front of, share the hope of Jesus Christ with them. So Southside Baptist Church, if you're going to be known for something, be known for preaching Christ. Be known for heralding the gospel and teaching sinners how they can have their sins forgiven. And be faithful to that to the very end. Be known as those people that regardless of what this life throws at you, regardless of what suffering you experience, use those as opportunities to tell other people about the goodness of God and how he saved you from your sins and he's redeemed you unto himself. Be known for preaching Christ. Well, the next thing, not only be known for preaching Christ, be known for investing in Christ's church. Look down at verses 22 through 24. Here we see there's a response to what happens in Antioch. Luke records in verse 22 that this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. It says this, that when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So Jerusalem got wind of what was happening in Antioch and they wanted to know what was going on and they wanted to encourage the work. So they sent a man named Barnabas. Well, we read about Barnabas earlier in Acts chapter 4. Uh, his name meant son of encouragement. And based on what we read about it, that was, not, that was not just a name. That was actually who Barnabas was. He was an encouraging brother. Uh, later on in Acts chapter 9, uh, when Paul, or Saul then, was converted, he goes up to Jerusalem and the disciples want nothing to do with him. But yet it was Barnabas who went aside Saul and led him to the apostles and helped them out. Jerusalem wanted to send Barnabas to encourage and figure out what was going on uh, there in Antioch because he was a trustworthy man. They did not send a man who was ill-equipped or, or unqualified. So men in the room, are you this kind of man? Are you the kind of man that Southside Baptist Church could send to another church and they would be encouraged and edified by your presence, by your teaching? And if that's not you, why isn't that you? Church, this is a great thing to pray for. Pray that God would raise up faithful men from among you who are mature in the Lord, who know how to handle God's word, and can be a blessing to other churches. Pray for that on a regular basis. Now, Barnabas had been sent to see what was going on. But my question is this. Why did Jerusalem care? I mean, they weren't the hub church that was responsible for everything else that was going on in the Christian world at that time. They had a lot of problems on their own. Why were they concerned about what was going on in Antioch? Because church, local churches have a responsibility to care for other local churches. Healthy churches have a responsibility to care for the health and well-being of other believers, even in other cities. And so Southside, you have been a model of this in so many ways. I've been so encouraged by y'all's generosity and support of the work of Trinity River Baptist Church. I mean, because of y'all's support and initiation, two weeks ago we had 149 people who gathered as a core team. Who None of us have been members of the same church. There's 76 adults and 73 children, so pray for more child care workers. <laughs> but because y'all were concerned for believers in Fort Worth, Texas... Because pastors like Blake and others were concerned about the lack of healthy churches in Fort Worth and said, we need to make sure that if we're going to have people move to Fort Worth, they have a church to go to. We've benefited from having Ethan and Sarah Pierce and Will Carpenter on our core team. They've blessed us. They were members of this church. 
thank you for your generosity and your concern, not only for what goes on in this building, but what's going on beyond your walls in other cities and other places. Thank you for your generosity towards us and your support. Now, let's be clear. I trust that was God working through you. At the end of the day, whatever happens in Fort Worth, God is going to get all the glory and praise for it. It's not any of us. But God works through means. And you were the means in which blessed me and my family and blessed so many other families that allowed Trinity River to gather even in this moment as a core team in Fort Worth, Texas. So thank you for your generosity. And my encouragement and exhortation to you is keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop looking and working for ways in which you can invest, not only in this church, but in churches in this city and beyond. Look for intentional ways to revitalize churches and plant churches. Because Baptist churches have a responsibility to care for other churches around you. That's why we're planting Trinity River. We don't want to be just concerned about what's happening in our building. We want to be concerned about the health and well-being of other believers around them. So continue to be faithful, not only with what God's entrusted you here, uh, but with the concern that you have with those churches around you. That's a sweet spirit that I pray that many churches would embody in the days ahead. Jerusalem had a concern for what was going on, and they wanted to send their best man, one of their best men, to encourage and support the work there. I love that the church in Jerusalem didn't send a skeptic, but an encourager. They did not want to suffocate the work. They wanted to support and encourage the work. So they sent Barnabas. And what does Barnabas find? What did he find when he showed up in Antioch? Look in verse 23. It says this. And when he came, he saw the grace of God and was glad. What does it mean to see the grace of God? What does it mean to see the grace of God inside of a local church? Well, if you read on, I think it gives us some helpful context. He says, or it says that he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus with steadfast purpose. So seeing the grace of God was seeing people transfer their loyalty from the world and from self to the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing people abandon their sin for the sake of following Jesus. That's what the grace of God looks like. So anytime you see that among you, you should be glad when someone repents of their sin. Today, I think you're going to have a baptism right after service. You should rejoice and be glad because that is the grace of God in someone's life. He saw it and was glad. Though I don't know exactly here what was all going, here in the, going on in the church of Antioch. I think we can fill in the blanks with the rest of the book of Acts. This wasn't just mere lip service to Jesus on Sunday. This grace of God evidenced itself in how these believers loved and cared for one another. We'll see that a little bit later on as well. They were gathering to preach God's word and care for one another. He saw the grace of God and was glad, and he encouraged them to continue to remain in God's grace and continue to be faithful unto the Lord. Now, there's been a lot of discussion recently on what is revival. What does revival look like, and how do we know what true revival is? Well, I think what happens here in Antioch kind of gives us a clear picture of what revival looks like. It's the preaching of the Lord Jesus, sinners responding to it, deserting the world to trust in Jesus, believers caring for one another, and then those believers trying to care for other churches. It's pretty basic. That's what revival looks like. It's not as fancy as we'd like for it to be. It's not as mystical because God has already spoken in his word. He's told us how he works. He works inside of his local church through the preaching of his word. Through disciples abandoning the world, repenting of sins, placing their faith in Jesus, walking in loyalty to him, 
and being concerned about the health and well-being of other people around them. So if you want to see God move, just use the means he's already given us, that he's given us, to preach and to gather, to care for. These are the things that God has done. We work and we labor, but God alone can give the growth. But you can rest assured, when God does something, it will persevere to the end. It will never fall or fade away. And that's exactly what is happening here in Antioch. Jerusalem's concern for the believers in Antioch led to the believers being built up and encouraged. And we see later that by sending Barnabas, more people came to faith in Christ. What's awesome about this is that Antioch doesn't become just some kind of footnote in the story in Acts. They themselves become a ministry hub and ascending church. If you were to read down later this afternoon, you could read what happens in 27 through 30. They hear of a famine that's going to be happening all over the world. So these brand new disciples get together and they give as much as they can to go help care for the saints in Judea. They become a supporting church. And then later on in Acts chapter 13, we see that Paul and Barnabas in verse 2, they're there in Antioch and the Spirit says, set apart for me Paul or Saul and Barnabas so they may go do a work that I've set them apart for. So this church who had received the support of Jerusalem is now a sending church. They're sending out missionaries all over the world. And by God's grace, if he gives us life and opportunity, this is what we're going to do at Trinity River Baptist Church. We are going to preach God's word. We are going to disciple God's people. We're going to do everything we can to raise up qualified men to be pastors. And we hope to send them out all over this state and all over this nation. By God's grace, if he gives us life and opportunity, we want to raise up missionaries who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We want to receive the support that you have given us and not just holding on to it. We trust that you're entrusting this to us so we might pass it on to other people. So I'd encourage you, would you pray for us in that? Would you pray that we would be faithful with all that God has entrusted to us so that we might see other healthy churches, not just one in Fort Worth, but dozens in Fort Worth, that we might send out men to be preachers and couples missionaries all over the world. And we will, and we have, we will continue to pray for Southside. That God would cause you all to be faithful unto him. Jerusalem blessed them, and Antioch became a blessing to others. This is what we should aim for, to be this kind of church, as long as the Lord Jesus has us on this earth, for his glory and the good of his people. So not only were these believers here in Antioch, were they preaching Christ, were they investing in Christ's work, the last thing is they were known for Christ alone. Known for Christ alone. And this is my third and final point. Let's read here in verse 25 through 26. That's what Luke writes. So Barnabas went to Tarsus looking to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So we see here, so in Acts 9, Barnabas leaves Saul in Tarsus. He goes back and he gets them and they're teaching the whole year. They're building up the church. And then, this is something you'd often probably pass over in your Bible reading in verse 26. Luke just mentions something. He says, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called what? Christians. Now this isn't a name that they call themselves that. They were calling themselves the way. They were calling themselves disciples. It was the people of Antioch who called these believers Christ people. That's what it means. He said those are Christ's people. And my question is, what were they doing that was so unique 
that the people in Antioch would identify them as Christ's people? Well, I think there's a few things. Number one, I think it's because of what they believed and what they taught. They believed and they taught and declared that Jesus was the anointed one of God. That the only way for sinners to have their sins forgiven is through Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection. That he was raised for their justification. And that those who repent and believe can be made right with God alone through Christ. They abandoned their former way of living for the sake of following Jesus. So I think their teaching marked them off. What they believed marked them off from the world. Not only that, as I mentioned earlier, it's how they loved one another. I think it's how they loved one another. I don't think this was some lip service to Jesus. I think the gospel was validated and confirmed inside of their church by how they cared and loved for one another. We've heard this our whole life if you've been following Jesus. But it's often taken for granted. I mean, just imagine the diversity of this church in Antioch. So at this time, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Over 500,000 people lived there. And there were people from all walks of life, from all races and backgrounds and religious backgrounds and all types of preferences. This church was prime for dysfunction and disunity. But did the people of Antioch say, those are those dysfunctional people? Those are those disunified people? No, those are Christ's people. They lived out what Christ has called all of us to live out. That the world will know you're my disciples by what? By your love for one another. They took seriously the responsibility to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. I don't know if you've read the book Compelling Community by Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever. If you haven't, I would encourage you to read it. Super useful book, just kind of painting the picture. What, does, what kind of community does the gospel create? And in the book, Jamie shares a story about Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is where I was a pastor for a few years before moving back to Fort Worth. And he shares a story about a guy named Bill. Now, I know Bill, so I can confirm the story's true. Uh, Bill, in his 60s, started attending Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and he was not a Christian. And for a living, Bill had been a Harvard professor uh, teaching on the madness of crowds, kind of why people gather, what they do, and all kinds of different things. But even teaching this class and studying crowds for years gave him no category for the local church. And so when he first stepped foot inside Capitol Hill and he saw the diversity and he saw people loving one another, he was stunned. This is what Bill says. It was striking from the first moments that I came through the door. It was clear that something special was going on. The relationship seemed not so much unnatural as highly uncommon. So I was introduced to the idea of a healthy church, a concept that had before eluded me. So the witness of this church not only it's the teaching, but it's love for one another, provoked Bill so much that later on, Bill became a Christian because of the witness and the love this church had for one another. And I think this is what was happening in Antioch, and I think this is what Jesus expects of Trinity River Baptist Church and Southside Baptist Church, is that Abilene would know that you are Christ's people because of your love for one another. And the last thing I think that marked them off for these people of Antioch to call them Christ's people is how they lived in the world. I think they simply lived out what Barnabas commanded them to do. They remained faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose in every situation and circumstance. So their lives as husbands and wives and children and employees were saturated with Jesus. That It, it didn't make sense if you took Jesus outside of it. They were marked off by Jesus in every single way. Brothers and sisters... 
do you live your life in such a way that your confession in this room on Sunday that Jesus is Lord is evident on Monday? Do your coworkers, your family members, your neighbors, your employees, would they be, would they be surprised to find out that you're a Christian? I was recently talking with a guy who's been very successful in the world. And I was talking about his, how he came to faith and his life since. And he just opened up and shared uh, that for a significant part of his career with one company, he doesn't ever remember telling them that he was a Christian. And he regrets it deeply. Well, let that not be said of us. Let it not be said of us that we didn't share about who Christ is and what he's done for us. What Christ has accomplished on our behalf should shape and influence every area of our lives. Brothers and sisters, there should be no confusion in Abilene over what a Christian is. There should be no confusion. Like Abilene should be able to look inside this church and get a clear picture of who Jesus is, what he has saved you for, and how to be made right with God. That is why Jesus has left you in Abilene. That is why Jesus has left us in Fort Worth, so that we would display his nature and character by how we preach his word, how we obey his word, by how we love one another. So pray and work that you may, by your life together, display the nature and character of Jesus. I mean, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.10 why God created the church. He said this mystery of putting Jews and Gentiles in one church, people who have nothing in common but Jesus, the reason why God did that was to display his manifold wisdom in the heavenly places. So the reason God has put you inside this church is so that you would teach God's word and love one another and display something about himself to the world around you. And until Christ returns or he calls you home, Satan is going to do everything he can to make sure this church is known by something else. He's going to do everything he can to make sure that this church and the believers are going to be known for your political loyalties, known for your career, your wealth, or something else. Oh, let us work against that. Let us not be naive to the schemes of the devil. And let us pray and labor to be and do what Paul said, that whether by my life or my death, only that Christ would be glorified in my body. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that Southside would be known for preaching Christ's word. I pray that this church, as long as the doors were open, would herald the good news of the gospel to this community and beyond. I pray that this would be a place where sinners can learn how their sins can be forgiven. I pray that this church will be a place that is not only concerned about the health and well-being of this place, but is concerned about Christ's work all over the world. And I pray that God would give you more opportunities to be a blessing to other people. And I pray that this church will be marked off as Christ's people until he comes or he calls you home. 